Our Heavenly Father, uh, we uh, approach your word again as we do every week. Uh, we come uh, humble and yet expectant, seeking your wisdom, seeking your understanding, uh, and yet knowing that you will speak and you will do great things through it. We pray that you would help us to understand what we're about to read and and pray that um, you would help us to to love it and to live out uh, the applications that you are teaching us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jonah 1, beginning at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sights. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. Uh, well, when we last left Jonah a couple weeks ago, he was floating in the ocean, uh, slowly sinking deeper and deeper into the waters. Uh, and when we start reading in today's passage, we see that he is swallowed by a great fish. Of course, the, the one thing you all know Jonah for, being swallowed by the great fish. Uh, right off the bat, I have to say this passage in particular has caused many people, many skeptics, uh, to disbelieve this entire narrative that somebody, a full-grown man, could actually be swallowed by a fish. Uh, it, it's interesting seeing some of the comments, that news article that I referenced at the beginning of Jonah 1, that man who actually did get uh, all, nearly swallowed by a whale, um, of course, the, the number one comments, all of the comments were just like, Jonah, I can't believe it. Um, and then, of course, all the, the doubters replying and saying, well, you know, actually, if you were to measure the uh, diameter of a whale's esophagus, there's no way that a whale could ever swallow a human being. And um, to that I say two things. One, nothing in the text says this is a whale. Uh, so keep measuring fish's esophaguses, I suppose. Uh, you have a lot of fish to measure. Uh, second, I say what Paul says in Romans 4, we worship a God who brings the dead to life and brings into existence the things which do not exist. 
Why would anybody think it's impossible that a fish could swallow a man? And yet, in reality, all the, the fish gets all the attention here. Uh, usually, uh, I don't think I'm the first one to come up with this, to say this, the, the great fish is actually a red herring. The fish is not the focus. <laughs> this is a chapter that shows us all about God's love and mercy to his prophets. A love and a mercy that causes Jonah to have a changed heart. It teaches us the, uh, the evangelical grace, or another way you could say that, the saving grace of repentance. Did you know that's actually, that's actually what our confession of faith, that's what our catechisms call repentance. They call it a saving grace. I think it's easy for us to uh, think of repentance as this duty that we must perform, uh, as, as this hard thing that we do in prayer to, to confess our sins before God. And yet, we have to balance that with the fact that it is a grace. It is a gift meant to lead to salvation. Uh, what our shorter catechism actually says is, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That is what repentance looks like in a believer, and it is a saving grace. So how do we see that in Jonah? We'll, we'll look at what repentance truly looks like uh, under, under two big headings. First is Jonah's turn, and second is God's mercy. So let's see what our text has to say to us. First, about repentance, Jonah's turn. What is it that Jonah goes through in this chapter? What is it that he's experiencing? For one, he feels he is experiencing uh, the sensation of really being dragged down to death. Uh, it, it's not hard to see. You read something like verse, verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5, The waters closed in over me. To take my life, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Um, I, I read verses like that, and I, I, I think I shared in my previous sermon, I, I'm not a fan of the open water, large bodies of open water. Um, something like this makes me feel a little claustrophobic. Stuff is closing in on me. I can't get out. Uh, and, and you might wonder, as, as you read through this, this sort of psalm that Jonah writes, uh, is he simply talking about the sensation of being in the water? Is there something more going on? Uh, I, I do think it's, it's intentionally meant to reflect two different states in Jonah's life. There's, there's the, the physical act of drowning that he is going through, but also it's a, it's a metaphor and an explanation of, of his spiritual condition. This is 
what it looks like when we openly rebel against God in sin. Uh, the other language that, that Scripture uses in the, the New Testament, Jesus in John 8 is saying to, uh, I believe, the, the Pharisees, you sin because you are slaves to sin. And then in, in Romans chapter 6, Paul also says, you, you, are, you were once enslaved to sin. Uh, and that's, that's deep language there. It, it, it means, in a sense, you, you belong to sin when you are not yet saved. You, you don't have a will of your own. You're, you're unable to resist sin's power over you. And then when we come to, 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 to realize that and to, to experience it, you feel that, 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 that trappedness in Jonah's words here, the psalm. And then he says, he says right at the outset in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of my sorrow, and out of my pain I cried out to the Lord. Because when we see our sin, that's what it should lead to. It should lead to a certain amount of, of distress and sorrow and, and pain, grieving. Uh, one of the, the hot topics that got discussed uh, this past week was uh, various issues surrounding homosexuality and everything. Um, one, I think one helpful uh, point of information that, that we learn when we hear Christians who struggle with homosexuality speak is that they, re they really experience the pain of what it's like to be in bondage to their sin. Their, their testimony is always, I, I can't control this. I, I, can't, um, I can't just wish these things away. I can't just change on my own. And they grieve. They recognize that they are against God's law. And they grieve that, it, that they are in bondage to it. The, the pain of being trapped by your sin uh, sh should be real. And I think we can learn, uh, we can learn in that sense what it really means to, to grieve over your sin as, as we should do in repentance, to, to grieve and to hate our sin. Uh, the, the problem is, like Jonah, we don't usually understand what a serious condition we're in until it's almost too late uh, or until we've, we've already come out on the other side of it and been saved. Uh, so it reminds me of um, when I lived in Mississippi, we were driving from uh, one town a couple hours away from Jackson back to our apartment uh, in the middle of just this horrific storm. Uh, this was something I learned about Mississippi. These huge thunderstorms just pop up out of nowhere. And uh, we were trying to make our way home at night. It was dark. It felt like just a sheet of water was coming down. And we had decided, um, I decided for some reason, whatever that is, to get off the highway and to take for the last half hour or so home uh, sort of a, a um, back roads highway that kind of goes through the goes through the, the forest of Mississippi, a beautiful drive normally in daylight. 
Um, I was white knuckling it the whole way home and uh, finally uh, made it home safely. Praise the Lord. Um, I got to talking to my friends after that and I said, yeah, we, we had to drive through. It was just crazy. It just all this rain. We took the, we took the Natchez Trace um, all the way back home. And my friend looked at me who grew up in Mississippi and he said, why did you do that? Massive trees are always falling over on that road during storms. I thought, wow, that, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe I shouldn't have gone that way. Maybe I should have stayed on the highway where there were no massive trees. Um, given the fact I couldn't see 10 feet ahead of me, uh, bad things could have happened. Uh, we were in a really grave situation. And, and I had no idea the entire half hour, 45 minutes that we were driving. And so we have to say that it is actually such a, a grace and a gift of God that he does show us our sin. And he does show us the, the horrible, horrible condition that we're in. And we almost ought to just praise God that he causes us to go through the distress and the sorrow of seeing where we are without him. Uh, a good, maybe anti-example of what Jonah goes through is, is King Saul. If you were following along with our reading in 1 Samuel, Saul was somebody who just, he consistently was distancing himself from God, consistently disobeying him and, and moving farther and farther away from him, persecuting the anointed one, David, who was to be king after him, to the point where he goes to, to consult a, a medium to raise up a dead spirit. And at the end of his life, wh where do we find him? Overwhelmed with, with utter sorrow and hopelessness when faced with the enemy of the Philistines going to war, just filled with utter hopelessness. And he ends up falling on his own sword. And that's how his life ends. When God does not show us the depths of our sin, it, it, it will end up leading to utter hopelessness. And so it, it's good, and we need to see our own enslavement. We need to see the sorrow. We need to, to come to the point where we say, like Jonah, it, it, it feels like the waters are closing in over me to take my life. I, I feel like there's no way out. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, not just going deep, but feeling like there's no escape because it's, it's only in those times that we see our true need for Jesus. We finally see that, that we're not going to get ourselves up. We're not going to get our head above water on our own. We need a Savior. Ultimately, our sin will lead us to death. It will lead us, as Jonah says, to the, the belly of Sheol, uh, the place in the Old Testament, Sheol, where, where uh, the wicked go and are separated from God forever. Jonah understands that his sin leads to eternal separation from God. And while Jonah was, was on the boat in the middle of the storm in chapter 1, he was so close, so close to perishing. 
but God showed him his sin. God gave him the grace of repentance to see his need for, for a savior. Well, well, what else does Jonah do? He, he feels this experience of being dragged down to death, both physically and spiritually, but, uh, but it's interesting, to, and, I, and I'm not uh, uh, getting this just, just from my own study, but, but other commentators have, have very ably pointed this out. What, what happens to Jonah? How does he come back to God? Well, he returns to the very places that he was trying to run away from in chapter 1. Namely, he goes back to the Word of God, and he goes back to the presence of God. Previously, chapter 1, he he had run away from God's call upon his life. When God spoke to him and said, go to Nineveh, he ran away from that. And then repeated over and over again, it says he was running away from the presence of the Lord. But now he's, he's returning to those exact places, right? So he's... He is, in essence, uh, trying to return to God's presence. You, you read that in verse, uh, verse 4 at least. He says, I said, I'm driven away from your sight, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then again in verse 7, my life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He is in the presence of God again. He's gone back to him, uh, how? Through prayer. Jonah is seeking the presence of the Lord again through his prayer. <clears throat> you might even say that prayer is the mark of God's presence in a Christian's life. Yes, God is, is, is everywhere present. He is omnipresence. Uh, he is in, in the Spirit and through Christ dwelling inside of you at all times. But prayer is the way that we consciously enter into God's presence. It's how we experience his presence with us. It's how we become aware of it. That's why there's, there, there's such a great emphasis on it in the, in the worship service, Right? We hear the call to worship, we sing a song, and then what? We pray. We pray for God's presence. That's why we spend so much time uh, with, the, with the pastoral prayer in the middle. We want to recognize God's presence in all of our trials and sufferings, and, and in the, the growth and the ministry of the church, we want the Lord to be present there. And so it's a good practice to to increasingly uh, grow in our awareness of the presence of the Lord. It, it, it's one thing to know that the Lord is always with us, but, but to experience it and to go to him in prayer is just this, it's an extra, it, it's the motivation. Doesn't it give you a greater motivation in living the Christian life when, when you come to those times when, when you really do feel the presence of the Lord with you? Uh, maybe you've experienced the points when, you, when you're in a heated argument with someone and, and you come to the realization in the middle of it that I'm wrong. Now what? <laughs> There's the Lord pricking your conscience. The Lord's presence there rebuking you. 
It humbles us. It keeps everything in perspective. It helps us to prioritize what's going on. Uh, it helps us to prioritize the, the different things going on in our lives. Uh, I know when I, uh, I'll, I'll have these times, I don't know if you have these times, when, uh, when I'll have an, an overwhelming sense of the presence of the Lord um, in relation to evangelism. Now, normally I'm not, I'm not good at small talk. I'm not particularly gifted at sharing the gospel, I don't think. Uh, but I'll have times when the Lord, I feel like I experience his presence more fully, and I think, I'm just going to go up and talk to him. And the Lord just uses that. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm given this, this boldness and this courage. Um, I won't say that happens often. More often than not, I'm in the, the scared and the, the weak phase. But um, the presence of the Lord helps us to um, be motivated to share the gospel. So it's a good practice to, to continue, well, to continually be in prayer and to practice being in the presence of God. Uh, another thing, where, where, does, where does Jonah return to? Uh, he returns to the word of God. Uh, the commentators all point out that it, a lot of this language in, in Jonah's psalm Sounds a lot like other psalms that we can read. Uh, just to list some of them, Psalm 18, Psalm 31, 42, 51, 69, 88, 118, 119, 120, 130, 142, 143, 144. Uh, Jonah is pulling from many, many psalms. Uh, I can actually add to that from, from Jonah chapter 1, 95 and 139. Now, whether or not he is... Uh, composing this all on his own, whether or not he's actually pulling from psalms that have already been written and taught, uh, we can certainly say that he has the truths of God's word stored up in his heart for a time such as this. Uh, he has the word of God so deeply embedded in his life that when he comes uh, to the lowest point and hits rock bottom, uh, spiritually and physically, what comes out of him? It, it's the hope that can only be found in the Lord that we read about in his word. Uh, you could say that going to the word of God in the times of our greatest needs or distress is the sign that we are a child of God. Because in our distresses, in our sorrows, in the, the rock bottom, where ought we get our hope? Where should we get our assurance? Where should we get our encouragement? It's always the Word. Uh, you might get it from somebody else. Um, you might just have the Lord remind you of, of some great truths, but, but always what the Lord is doing through his spirit and always what that friend is going to end up reminding you of is something found in Scripture. Scripture is where we get all of our hope, all of our encouragements. And so again, it, it's a good practice as long as you are not at rock bottom currently to be storing up that word in your heart now. Both of these things, to, to get in the habit of seeking God's presence, uh, 
to get in the habit of knowing the hope and the truths in God's word so that when you face your sin and you realize the, the, the depths of it and your enslavement to it, you come to the place where you can cry out like Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the one that's going to pull me out of this. He's the one that's going to rescue me. And we need to remember that, that this kind of repentance that Jonah goes through, listen, he's already been saved. He's already been a prophet for a long time. And this is something that, that you know, we'll, we'll preach to you over and over again. Repentance is not a one-time thing at the beginning of your Christian life. Repentance is something that has to go on and on and on because you are always going to be experiencing your sin. You're never going to be freed fully from your sin in this life. It'll always be there dogging you and, and pulling you back. And so we need to get into the habit of, of uh, keeping short accounts with God, not letting your sin pile up before you go to him. But to remember that, that continually, always, salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, Jonah is... In this chapter, as he's making all of his great confessions about, about who the Lord is, he's, uh, Sinclair Ferguson points out, he's no longer the, you know, the, the trained theologian of verse 1, knowing what to recite back. Uh, he is the awakened backslider. He knows what it's like to experience the grace of God now. And so though at the end of chapter 2, um, maybe the confession he says sounds very similar to what he would have said in chapter 1. It's, it is charged with brand new meaning. It's charged with a fresh experience of the grace of God. And this is the place Jonah has to get to really before we can move on to Jonah chapter 3 and before he can go on to tell this gospel and this grace to other people. He needs to have personally known the Lord's goodness and deliverance and salvation. And so that's where we need to be as well. If we're going to minister to others in the church, if we're going to minister to those outside of the church, our neighbors, our coworkers who don't know Jesus, we need to be more like the, the awakened backslider than we are the trained theologian. We need to know what the gospel really is. We need to say, I have experienced this goodness and this mercy, and I know that you need it too. And this is where Jonah finds himself after going through his repentance. And so Jonah has made, it, it seems as though, a, a complete 180 which is exactly what repentance is. It's a complete 180, turning away from your sin to go towards God. Uh, and yet, in all this talk of repentance, uh, Jonah's turning back to God. We, we can't miss God's role in all of this because in between Jonah's near death and his repentance and his return, we see that Jonah is not just making this turn and, 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 uh, and experiencing this repentance all on his own. Uh, in between the death and the return, uh, 
we find God's mercy and we find God's grace. Repentance is a saving grace that we are gifted from God. After Jonah is, is sinking farther and farther into the ocean, but before he composes this great psalm of salvation, what happens? The fish. Uh, now I'll grant to you that being eaten alive sounds pretty bad. But this fish is not a judgment on Jonah. It is God's miraculous act of deliverance to Jonah. Because where was Jonah before this? Drowning. With zero hope, the fish is the one that saves him. Of course, through God. Uh, But it's the fish which is the instrument that God uses to redeem Jonah, so to speak. And again, here's here's where the... the, uh, The analogy starts to kick in again, uh, that just as God raises up Jonah and saves his physical life, he is doing a a new work in in giving him a new spiritual life as well. Uh, Verse 6, one commentator called the psychological center of this whole psalm. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. It is a vivid picture of what God is doing with Jonah spiritually, but it's also a vivid picture of what he is he's going to do, what he intends to do in chapter 3 with Nineveh to bring them to repentance. God raises, he is going to raise, and he has raised in Jonah a dead sinner to new life. And it's what what God does with us as well when he saves us. Romans 6, um, again, in addition to talking about our enslavement to sin, it it also says that uh, we have been buried with Christ in our baptism into his death. And we have been raised up to new life with him. And if you have been buried with Christ uh, in his death, you will surely be raised up to resurrection life with him. And so what Paul is saying there is when Jesus went down into the grave, you went with him. And when he came up out of the grave, you came with him. Your sin and your old life is dead. He's freed you from that power and he's freed you from that enslavement of your sin and he has resurrected you to a brand new life. That's why we talk about one of the other big doctrinal theology words you'll hear is regeneration. Right? So usually, well, you'll hear when we present the gospel to other people, sometimes this, this false presentation that you're, you're, well, coincidentally, drowning in the ocean. Uh, and when you share the gospel with someone, you're throwing them the life preserver. And they just have to grab a hold in faith. That's an awful presentation of the gospel. Because you are not drowning in the ocean to grab hold of a life preserver. You are on the bottom of the ocean, dead, with no breath in you. 
That's what Ephesians 2 uh, says. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you need to be resurrected back to life. <clears throat> and it's this sort of, sort of death and life motif uh, that, that Jesus himself links to the story of Jonah. So which we just, just read in Matthew 12 in which uh, Jesus references again in Matthew chapter 16 is, is this parallel between himself and Jonah. When he reads, when Jesus reads Jonah, he sees his own ministry in Jonah in that as Jonah spends three days and three nights in a fish, Jesus himself is going to spend three days and three nights in the earth, in the grave. And just as Jonah was, was raised up to, to, to new life, so to speak, so when, uh, when Jesus spends those three days and three nights, he himself is going to be raised up. But, but obviously, even, even greater than Jonah, he says, I am going to give you new life through my own resurrection. It's not just going to be my own life that's delivered. It, it's yours. Your life is going to be raised up through my work on the cross and through my going down into the grave. Christ, though, greater than Jonah, enters into an even greater state of being forsaken by God. He actually enters hell for us, and he effectively gives us that new spiritual life, things which Jonah, just being in the fish, couldn't do. And so the, the point that Jesus is trying to make in his sermon is that when you hear me telling you to repent, don't turn a, a, a skeptical side eye and say, well, why don't you just prove it, that you're right? Why don't you show me something? Why should I believe you? No, he says, my cross is all the proof that you need. What you have to do is to repent and to turn to me. Because in Christ's own death, we have been given life. Uh, and it goes to show that the other uh, phenomenal truth about God's mercy in, in the story of Jonah is that God... God is going to do whatever he can to pursue you and to save you. He is going to go to the greatest lengths imaginable to chase after you and to bring you back to himself. Right? How, how far did Jonah run away from God physically, spiritually, always running from the presence of the Lord? And yet, we saw God's power um, all throughout chapter 1, we see God, uh, God's appointing and God's control at the beginning and at the end of what we read today with the fish. Uh, we see him calling Jonah at the beginning. We see him sending a storm onto the sea to get Jonah's attention, uh, raising up the fish to get Jonah's attention, uh, even through the pagan sailors trying to grab him by the lapels and shake him and say, Jonah, listen to the Lord. God did an awful lot to get Jonah's attention. 
But you'll notice that, that, that all throughout this text, though it, it looks like a lot of really awful things for Jonah, God's purpose throughout these first two chapters is not judgment on Jonah. His purpose all throughout is mercy. Jonah gets brought back to the Lord. God was not intending to maybe, maybe not, I'll end Jonah here. His intention was not wrath, but mercy. And really, this is, this is the foundational truth throughout the book of Jonah. It's what he's trying to teach Jonah about Nineveh, too. My intention is not wrath with Nineveh. My intention is grace and forgiveness and to change their hearts and to draw them back to me. <clears throat> so here's something we cannot miss from Jonah 2. Something all of us need to remember at every point is that you cannot run away too far from God. If you belong to him, it does not matter how guilty you feel. It doesn't matter how stained or polluted or how ugly you think your sin has made you. It doesn't matter if you've been running your entire life. Uh, it doesn't matter if maybe you've, you've just backslidden recently. Uh, it doesn't matter if it was that one big thing 20 years ago that you can't get over. There is nothing that God cannot redeem you from. You cannot run away out of the reach of God's mercy. He is going to relentlessly pursue you with his love until you turn back to him and confess him as your Lord and Savior. Uh, you remember how Psalm 23 closes, the very last verse of Psalm 23, surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I think they need to update that verse a little bit because I don't like the word follow. Um, I won't bring up the original language as much, but I'll bring it up here. It's not follow, like just kind of strolling along. It's the word for chase. And it is the word for hunt. You could even use that word for persecute if you wanted. God's mercy and his goodness is going to chase you down until he brings you back. He is not going to let you run away from him and rebel against him in sin. He is not going to give you up to your own sin. He is going to draw you back and save you. It is a fierce and a relentless love that does whatever it takes to save you from your own drowning and to breathe his new life into you. Our God is faithful and he cannot deny you any more than he can deny himself. Even the hard things, 
the storm being thrown into the ocean, a near drowning experience. Romans 5 tells us that we get to rejoice in even all of those tribulations because those tribulations are producing in us endurance and character and hope because we know that those tribulations are making us more like Christ. And they're drawing us back to the Lord who saves us. They're fitting us for heaven. God is faithful and he will not deny you any more than he can deny himself. Now you'd think Jonah would be ready for Nineveh in chapter 3. He's not. Not exactly. Uh, You see his his great confession in verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Uh, We're going to see that he has still some of his idols to work through. Uh, And yet, we confess with Jonah that same truth with a voice of thanksgiving. I will sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We extol our great God as a Savior. We extol him as the only Savior. It is the Lord who does it. And so, do not forsake that great steadfast love that he gives you by going back to your idols. Do not turn away from him. But rather, for all those who are willing to, willing to repent, recognize their sin, and turn to Christ, and to cling to him as their only hope of salvation. He is your salvation. Christ is your salvation. And Christ will be, from here on out, your, your greatest consolation in this life. He will save you from your sin, and he will keep lifting you up out of the pits of despair with his relentless love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we um, praise you and we thank you that your great steadfast love is upon us. We praise you and we thank you that our hope is set fully on you. And that you give us total assurance in your own work. You are a great God and we ask that you would forgive us of our sin. We ask that if there are any uh, straying from you right now uh, in rebellion, uh, even as we um, are about to approach your table, that you would give them the saving grace of seeing their sin and turning away from it. We pray, O God, that you would keep us near to you in prayer. Keep us always trusting in your word. And we pray that you would help us to to continually lean 
on your mercy as our only hope of salvation and, and nothing else. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.